I'm so glad you're here today. Last week was Holy Week. We had an amazing opportunity to reflect on one of the time periods that, that changed everything. We saw Savior's love displayed from washing feet to going to a cross, being placed into a tomb, and then being raised from the dead. All that we might have life abundantly and eternally. I'm not sure if that has sunk in completely, how many times you've heard that story. But what's exciting is that that story has changed so many lives and continues to do that. We're back, as I said, in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus, and he's teaching. It's the longest recorded sermon, and he is sharing hope with the discouraged, the abused, and the burdened that life underneath the Messiah, underneath this new king, is going to be radically different. And Jesus started off with the Beatitudes. And, and he said, blessed are those who are poor, who see their or realize their dependence upon me. And he goes on and, and he describes how living underneath the reign of God, submitting to God, changes things as we depend upon him more, as he fills us with his spirit, as he guides us and directs us in opportunities. It is quite the adventure. Then Jesus begins to contrast six basic kingdom truths. Well, you'll understand this even as we get into a little bit more, but he says something like this. You understand the law to say this, but actually there is a more robust understanding of these principles if you can bear with me, if you can listen, if you understand what it means to live underneath the good, good king. Jesus is basically saying that living underneath the king's reign looks and feels different than the way you've been living. Right after the Beatitudes, Jesus begins with anger. Blake helped us understand what Jesus meant a few weeks back, but let me illustrate, let me review. Jesus was affirming that murder is bad, and we would all agree with that. But that being angry is just like killing or murdering that person. That anger is really the core of the problem. Today, we learn that adultery is bad. But that lusting is just like committing adultery. And that lust is the core of the problem. We're going to learn that Christ's solution is to nip anger and lust in the bud before murder and adultery blossom. I'm going to look at what the Bible says about adultery and lust before we learn how to nip it in the bud. Now, I bet some of you, especially if you're newer, 
Are you kidding me? Like, this is the message I'm coming to? Adultery and lust? I, I mean, seriously. But let me say this. Is as we go through the scriptures and as we listen to what Jesus teaches, the first reason we're going to cover it is that Jesus saw it as important. And so we need to talk about it. Secondly, lust and adultery is an issue, even in the church. Now, we can deny it, or we can address it and see what Jesus has to say. So before we jump in, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word, and I thank you even for hard texts, hard passages, because God, somehow we don't understand all that you have for us. We desire deeply to be comfortable. We desire deeply to have uh, all of our eggs in the right basket. We just want life to be smooth. But God, life isn't that way. And so we ask you to teach us today. We ask you to help us understand what it means to live underneath your reign and rule. Help us, God, leave here excited, convicted, inspired, because your Holy Spirit is working in each one of us. We pray, Father, for the various churches in our area. I pray for Fierce Church and for Meadowland and for Redemption. And along with all the other churches all over, well, the state and our country and the world who are meeting together, who are proclaiming your name and praising you and teaching about you. I pray for the teens that are downstairs as they are encouraging our children to love you with all of their hearts. God, we are blessed, and we thank you, even for the, meet, or even for the privilege of meeting together corporately. It just seems, God, we say that all the time after these last few years. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's open our Bibles. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, as I said, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. You can follow along with me. I'm going to start reading at verse 27, Matthew 5, 27, and we will go through verse 30. So Jesus says this. You have heard of the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery, but I say, Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even if it's your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
Jesus starts off in a, in a way that nobody debates. He says, you must not commit adultery. Adultery is a heinous sin which hurts God and others deeply. It is the ultimate act of selfishness and the breaking of trust. It hurts God, but it also hurts a long list of others, but mostly your spouse. The Bible defines marriage as a permanent union between a man and a woman. And adultery as being sexually intimate with anyone other than your spouse. The Mosaic Law portrays adultery as one of the most despicable sins punishable by death. Now, granted, and and you learn this early, is that all sin is an abomination against God. We know that. But there are certain sins that carry, well, heavier penalties, that have far more scars. And I think this is what God is saying. In Deuteronomy 22.22, in the Old Testament, Moses said this, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. God's view, adultery is serious, it's evil. Now, the cultural hedonistic view, the one that's prevalent today, is that sex is just a biological But the scriptures do tell us that a Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and belongs to the Lord. Our bodies, a Christian person's body, is never to be used for any purpose that dishonors God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes this to the Corinth church. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? And was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Let me say this. Nobody plans adultery at their wedding. Nobody. Never a thought. You are in some kind of la-la land that thinks again, and you, you look, and, and I can't love this person anymore. I would never hurt this person. And you just go through the ceremony, and it is awesome, and it should be that way. It should. But actually, divorce happens about 50% of the time. And not only that, the majority or the main reason for divorce is unfaithfulness. And so it happens much more than even marriages breaking up. So maybe it's good that we do talk about it. I do. But Jesus said this, adultery is bad. But I say, Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. 
Some may even be thinking at this time, if, if this is God's standard, I mean, if, if lust or if I see a very attractive woman in the right spot, it, I mean, there's no doubt my mind's going to start traveling, right? Isn't that normal? So if this is God's standard and I'm going to fail, I might as well just satisfy my flesh and just get forgiveness, right? I mean, God forgives. And it's true. But forgiveness never removes the scars. You know, because we are selfish, lust has been around for a long time. You may not have noticed it in the Ten Commandments, but in the Tenth Commandment, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the scripture says this, you must not covet your neighbor's wife. You must not covet. Jesus is speaking of a selfish man who looks intentionally. He is addressing purity because lust is a favorite strategy of the enemy. We, in our culture, are told that lust is innocent. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's just me and my thoughts. But here Jesus says it's adultery. Our culture promotes and highlights the sensual. We hear this often about pornography. Pornography doesn't hurt anyone. It's just really private. But actually, pornography hurts everyone. And it's everywhere. 50 years ago, you had to work a little harder to get it. But anymore, if you have a computer, you can get pornography. And it happens. It happens to guys, especially in the church and outside the church. Lusting sidelines us, makes us ineffective. And yes, lusting can be forgiven. And there's a lot of things that happen which we're not going to go into, but the truth is this, is that there will always be scars. So Jesus gave a solution, and his solution is this, pluck it out and cut it off. Now, come on. What Jesus is doing is that he is shouting. He's saying, deal drastically with, with this sin. And it doesn't get more drastic than plucking or cutting. Now, Jesus is also using hyperbole here to get this across. God does give us a strategy because he has wired us as sexual beings. But he has given us a strategy so that we might, so that his kids might enjoy Intimacy like this in a right way. Paul's first strategy is that you are to run. Run. Now, you know, it's growing up, running, at least in my neighborhood, meant um, you couldn't win. <laughs> it, it, it just meant that, it, you know, in my school or whatever. And, and if there was any kind of a fight or any kind of a situation, you would assess very quickly. 
Am I going to win or am I not going to win? If I'm going to win, let's go. Go for it. If I'm not going to win, man, I hope I'm fast. But God here does not say, let's evaluate how strong or mature you are. You know what? If you've been walking with God for a long time, no problem. You can resist. You know what he says? Run. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 18. Run from sexual sin. If you mark your Bibles, I would mark that. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? So you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, in 2 Timothy 2, 22, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Don't go toward it. Don't stand your ground. Don't feel like you can handle the scene. Run. Instead, fill it with something. Pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Hang out with those people that have the same desires as you. So first strategy is run. Realize you will not win. Secondly, don't provide for the flesh. Now that, again, as you grow up, and it's a very biblical kind of concept, but in Romans 13, 14, Paul is talking to a group of believers in Rome, and he says, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus. Hang out with Jesus. Stay connected with Jesus. And don't think about, or don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires or your flesh. Don't get in situations or circumstances that your flesh will be fed. No dabbling. No flirting. No gazing. In fact, one of the things that I've tried to encourage, especially men, to be able to think like this. Glance or gaze. The truth is, in our world, it's almost impossible not to um, be seduced with our eyes somewhere. It could be in Menards. It could be in Jewel. It could be anywhere. You know, you could be taking your dog for a walk, you know. But the difference between a man of God and one that isn't walking with God is that's the second look or the third look or the gaze. The gaze. God gives us strength and power and authority when we see something that will hurt or be evil for us to turn away. There's no doubt. Our flesh says, why? This looks good. 
I'll just dwell a little bit. You can't unlook, but you can choose not to gaze. And Jesus is not speaking of unexpected and unavoidable exposure to sexual temptation. But if you actually go back to providing for the flesh, there are certain places you probably shouldn't walk in. There are certain shows you shouldn't be watching. There are certain videos, you know, or YouTube channels that you got to stay away from. That's just what God is talking about. Don't provide. Don't, don't set yourself up for failure. And then the last strategy, protect your mind. Oh, Proverbs 4, 23. Guard your heart above all else. Just even look at above all else. Solomon is just basically sharing, hey, if there's one thing you do, one thing above everything else, everything, 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 protect your mind. Guard your heart. Again, I think it's funny sometimes. Well, maybe it's sad. You hang out with certain people, and they may describe a movie, or they may describe a book, or they may describe something and say, hey, well, there is this one scene, but I'm mature enough to be able to watch it. Oh, okay. I bet if you knew about that scene and you were sitting there with your kids, you probably wouldn't let that happen. That's all. And sometimes we have this double standard or triple standard or, or any of those things, but there's this myth of maturity. I am strong. I can watch. I can dabble. I can flirt with her. And you know what? I'm okay. I'll never eh, yeah, 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 yeah. Remember, thoughts always precede actions. Or you could ask this question. There was a guy in the Bible who was described as a man after God's own heart. I would think with a title like that, that dude has a great connection with God. <laughs> no problem, right? He, he is invincible. And just about every one of you are snickering right now. Because it's David. So David, a man after God's own heart, takes a little casual walk on the top of the palace. Whoa, did things go downhill after that? Murder, adultery, loss of a child, penalties, scars. Guard your heart above all else. It is the most important thing you can do. Science tells us, I certainly don't know, but I guess everything you see stays. It's just a matter of some of us, especially older, can't recall, you know? But it's a trap. It's there. You don't undo it. You don't. Protect your mind. You know, it's so interesting. In the book of Proverbs, uh, 
I learn best, I think, through pictures and, and, and understanding stories and, and illustrations like that. Solomon in Proverbs paints a picture that is so vivid to me. I'm going to read some out of chapter 5 and some out of chapter 6 and some out of chapter 7. But listen to what Solomon writes, starting chapter 5, verse 1. My son, pay attention to my counsel. Listen carefully to my wise counsel. Then you will show discernment, and your lips will express what you've learned. For the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey. Listen to these descriptions, okay? Who doesn't want honey, right? Yeah. Okay, chocolate. And her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as poison. No one wants that. And dangerous as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. For she cares nothing about the path to life. She staggers down a crooked trail and doesn't even realize it. So now, my sons, listen to me. Never stray from what I'm about to say. Stay away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Don't go near the door of the house. Don't make provision for the flesh. Run, run, run. Down to verse 15. Drink water from your own well. Share your love with your wife. Verse 18. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. In chapter 6, describing this adulterous relationship, starting in verse 27, it's, it's really clear, the picture here. Can a man scoop a flame into his lap, not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? Do you think this type of a relationship doesn't matter? And then in chapter 7, starting in verse 21, so she seduced him with her pretty speech and enticed him with her flattery. He followed her at once like an ox going to the slaughter. He was like a stag caught in a trap awaiting the arrow that would pierce his heart. He was like a bird flying into a snare knowing little it would cost him his life. And yet over and over and over again, We can get away with this. God's way must be old-fashioned. Why would we resist? Ah, doesn't God want me to be happy? Oh, this is so flawed. You will never, ever regret listening to God because God's plan is perfect. So fill your marriage with romance and enjoy the intimacy that God has given you. There's so much more we can talk through and understand, but let's go on in Matthew chapter 5 because Jesus goes on a few more verses. You have heard Jesus said, 
that the law says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I, Jesus says, that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Now, the truth is, we can spend a lot of time here, and we, we are not going to this morning. But our churches, all of our churches, evangelical churches all over, are filled with broken, failing, and also restored marriages. There are marriages that are blossoming. There are marriages that are, that are unbelievably fulfilling. So I want to be able to talk about this a little bit. And, and I know Jesus did, but I want to tread gently. He said, you have heard that divorce is easy, which may not make sense to you at this moment. But I say, a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. What is Jesus saying here? Well, there are only four basic interpretations of what the Bible says on divorce and remarriage. And all four are found in churches in this area. They are. Here are the four ways to look at this. First of all, there are some churches or some theologians or some people that believe divorce, you cannot be divorced for any reason. The second understanding is you can get divorced for any reason. The third way to look at it is divorce is permitted under certain circumstances, but remarriage is never permitted. And then lastly, divorce and remarriage are permitted under certain circumstances. Now, what Jesus is doing in this passage is that he tries to correct the erroneous doctrines and the practices of the rabbinic priests of those religious leaders that have somehow taken the scriptures and replaced it with their own teaching. Listen to this. In Jesus' day, the dominant rabbinic position on divorce was taught by a rabbi called Hillel. And what he basically said, he interpreted the scriptures to say, you can divorce your wife on any grounds. Hey, if she burns your eggs in the morning, she's out of here. Now, the, the Rabbi Hillel school came to this conclusion with a poor understanding. And you can write this down. I'm not going to read it. But out of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. If you read it, God's permission for divorce was an accommodation of his unbelievable grace to human sin and because of the hardness of hearts. Jesus even explained in Matthew 19 that divorce is not what God originally intended. And by saying you can get a certificate of divorce doesn't mean it makes divorce right. A certificate of dismissal at this time in the first century protected the woman's reputation from slander 
and actually provided her proof or legal freedom from her former husband so that she could actually remarry. The Lord's primary purpose in Deuteronomy 24 was not to give an excuse for divorce, but to show the potential evil of it. His intention was not to provide for it, but to prevent it. Jesus was clearly landing with the other thought, the other rabbi, the other rabbi whose name was Shammai, who taught that marriage was permanent, but it could be dissolved if a person was unfaithful. God clearly talked through the prophet Malachi in Malachi 2.16 and shared with us, God said this, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of the heavens of armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now so much more can be said as scholars try to discern God's principles and apply them to our lives today. I think every one of us can always go deeper. But we want to once again say at the end of every service, we want to encourage each one of you on your journey. Maybe you're struggling in some of these areas. Maybe you want to know what the scriptures has to say. Maybe you want some people to pray with you. We want to be available for that. We don't want you to leave all discouraged or beat up thinking, oh, my word. Jesus then closes, though. Anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Now, this statement seems to muddy the waters until you understand what Jesus is talking about and how he's speaking from the Father's perspective. First of all, if you can understand this, to God, marriage was permanent. So unless someone had broken their vows, you are still married. So if you're actually still married and you actually marry someone else, you are committing adultery. So he's making a statement that basically says this, hey, there's one reason to be divorced. But if you get divorced and you go ahead and marry, well, actually, I don't really see that. But the debate goes on and on. And quickly, which I have not even addressed, talks about remarriage. Let me just say this is that Jesus certainly shakes up the apple cart. The culture had misunderstood marriage and sexual purity. Unfaithfulness to God involved both the marriage bed and the mind. You will never regret dealing drastically with these sins. You won't. God hates divorce, and marriage is permanent, But our world is broken. And there are many different scenarios and situations out there. And God does give grace. We are all in different positions. I know that each one of us has the power and strength to live the way God asks us to live. 
sin against God and others can be forgiven. And relationships can be restored. This is the gospel. This is something that makes those who follow Jesus different than everybody else. Yes, people will make mistakes. Yes, people will offend God. Yes, people will sin because they are selfish, because I am selfish. But as each one of us look at God's principles, recognize what God is saying, with courage and strength to be able to obey God with all of our hearts, to be able to deal ruthlessly with sin when we sin, when we hurt someone, we go to them and we ask forgiveness. God restores and redeems. Jesus addressed sexual sin. It wouldn't have been my favorite message to start off after Easter. But he addressed it because it's a big deal. I'd like you at this time to kind of bow your heads and shut your eyes. You know, there's so many different ages here. There's so many different lives, life stages. There's so many different scenarios that are going on. I would like you just to take a moment just to talk to God. Maybe he's revealed some blind spots to you. Maybe there's some things that you need to deal with. Maybe you've been dabbling. Maybe you've been hurting your marriage or your future marriage and you didn't even know it. Just take a moment. Talk to God. Father, we know that your ways are best. We do. But the enemy continually bombards us, telling us that our happiness is most important, that we just want to do things that feed our flesh. And God, you're changing that from the inside out. You're having all of us look at people differently. You died and sacrificed your life so that we might have abundant life, that we might have authority over sin's power in our life, that we can serve you and obey you with all of our hearts and then eventually spend eternity with you. God, none of us deserve that. Help us deal with things in our life, God, that build barriers between you and us. We love you, Lord.